I invite you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel in the liturgy there it says Matthew 28 but I'm actually going to add another pass another part of Matthew along with that so let's start in Matthew 3 Matthew chapter 3 we're going to look at the tail end of Matthew 3 part of Matthew 4 and then skip over to chapter 28 Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And now Matthew 28. The passage that every missionary has to preach on. Matthew 28, beginning with verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let us pray. Holy Father, how good it is to be able to hold in our hands your word, to read it with our eyes, to meditate on it in our hearts, and to know that it is you who speaks to us. Grant, O Lord, your spirit this morning in abundant measure 
that we might behold wonderful things in your law, that we might put these things into practice. We ask all this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Well, I bring you greetings this morning from your brothers and sisters in Christ in northern Peru, in Trujillo, Cajamarca, Piura, and Chimbote. Uh, it's great to be with y'all. Uh, you probably don't know this, but I have actually visited this church before. It was about 15 years ago on a Wednesday night. A, a, the men's group was meeting and I got to visit with some of the men of the congregation then. I, I was kind of, I was just coming through town midweek and decided to stop off and uh, check in with Pastor Joe and, and see if y'all had anything going on. So anyway, it's great to be here with you. I've sort of kept up a little bit uh, over the years and heard bits and pieces of how things are, are going here. It's great to see that the Lord is indeed blessing the work and great to be here with you this morning. Let me start off. I, I don't know if... Um, if you have heard of this or not, but the, there was a guy named John Calhoun back in the 60s. He was a, a social science researcher. He did an experiment with rats back in the 60s, and then he repeated the same thing again in the early 70s with mice, and, and his study got printed up in Scientific American, I think two times in the 60s and in the 70s. It became known as the Rat Utopia Experiment. I don't know if you've, if you've heard of it. In this Rat Utopia Experiment, John Calhoun set up a Rat Utopia. In other words, he, he set up to, to give these rats everything that their little rat heart could possibly desire. They would, well, first of all, he quarantined them for a while to make sure that when they went into the colony, they didn't bring any diseases or anything. And then once they got in the colony, they had an abundance of the best kind of rat food that you could ever imagine. And they had the best drink that, are, I don't know what that would be, but water. But anyway, supposedly the best drink, they were allowed to breed freely as their, uh, as their hearts would be content to do. And, and then they, he set up all of these different games for them. So the rats had all of these different, uh, these toys and games and things there. And so you would think that all of these rats, if they, if they were given every possible thing that their heart could imagine, you would think that they would just prosper and thrive, right? Well, no, actually not. Um, in fact, these rat communities, both times with the rats and then later with the mice, both times these communities became extremely pathological. Some of the rats just stopped eating altogether and starved to death. Others of the rats became extremely violent and started killing all the rest of the rats around them or being killed by them. Some of them began to do weird things like eat their own leg off or something like that. Uh, many of them stopped breeding some of them developed sort of alternatives to that. I'll let you imagine what that might be. So there were all kinds of pathological things that this rat utopia devolved into, becoming just completely pathological until the whole community finally just died out. And it happened both times, both with the rats and also with the, the mice uh, a little bit later. 
Now, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that something very much like the rat utopia experiment is happening to Western culture right now. And when I say Western culture, I don't, I don't mean literally only Western culture because essentially any city in the world that's a million people or more, whether it's in South America or whether it's in Africa or whether it's in Asia, any city of a million people is now a Western a Western city, a part of Western culture. They've got the Internet. They've got Internet pornography. They've got Hollywood. They've got all of those things. And so they're Western just like we are Western. And one of the things that is happening in all of these places is that much like the rat utopia experiment, we're seeing all sorts of strange pathologies begin to, to break out. Um, I, what I would suggest to you is that essentially what we're seeing is the advance of secularization in our world. Secularization is something that started back in the Enlightenment, but it didn't get a whole lot of traction until after World War II. It got some traction in the, in the 50s. Some sociologists began to study it in earnest in the 60s and 70s and declared that secularization was unstoppable, religion would soon be dead across the world. But then around the end of the 90s or the very beginning of the, of the 2000s, all, the, all of a sudden we realized that, that religion seemed to be growing in certain parts of the world, like Africa and among the Muslims, and uh, sociologists began to, to notice that some parts of the world took religion very seriously, and, and so then some sociologists, particularly Christian sociologists, started telling us, well, secularization really isn't a thing. And in fact, some of the, the real expert uh, missiologists, the expert church planters started telling us, nothing to see here. There's a little bit of secularization going on in Europe, a little bit going on in the northeast of the United States, but basically there's nothing to see here move along, everything's fine. The church is growing by leaps and bounds in Latin America. It's growing by leaps and bounds in Africa and in Asia. Nothing to see here, no worries. I would suggest to you that that is actually not the case. Uh, in fact, precisely at the time when some Christian sociologists started telling us that there was nothing to see here is the time when secularization kicked into high gear and all of a sudden, no, I think now nobody can deny that it has a stranglehold on, on our world. Let me just give you a, I mean, I, I hate sermons that start out giving a long litany of, of bad things, but I'm going to give you a, a few of, of these things. The early part of last year, I think it was February or March of, of 2022, the CDC here in the United States uh, declared a state of emergency for adolescent and young adult mental health. Is that just a coincidence? We've seen uh, su suicide rates, drug abuse, and overdose, overdose deaths skyrocket to rates that have never been seen in the history of the world before. Just a coincidence, right? We've seen gender dysphoria. We've seen an explosion of gender dysphoria. If you don't know what that is, gender dysphoria is a, is a phenomenon 
that we've known about forever. Even the Bible talks about something kind of like that. Uh, but we've been studying it for about a hundred years. Gender dysphoria, it has, throughout all of our studies, it's almost been exclusively a male phenomenon. Very, very few females, but it's mostly males who feel very uncomfortable with their male identity and feel more uncomfortable thinking of themselves and acting as, as females. Now, interestingly, we, this is not new. We've known about it for a long time. It's been studied for a long time, over a hundred years. The interesting thing is, always in the past, until about last week, it was always, almost always with males. It was almost always something suffered from the time that the male was a toddler for the rest of their life. And, uh, but, but now, we're seeing something radically different. Now there's an explosion of gender dysphoria among teenage girls. It's happening all across the developed world. The developed, yeah, the developed world, the, West, the Western world. And uh, it, it's just, it, it's, it's exploding. First of all, always in the past, the, the researchers tell us that 0.018% of all humans experience gender dysphoria. And and 99% of all of those were male. Now it's it's exploded among females. It always started early in life, but now we have this new category called rapid onset gender dysphoria to explain what's happening to our young girls as, as they as they go through puberty and and uh, go, uh, advance into their in, into their teenage years. So. So we've got we've got the the CDC declaring a state of emergency for mental health. We've got the suicide rate and drug overdose rates that are off the charts. We've got an explosion of gender dysphoria. We've also got across all of the Western world, we've got plummeting marriage rates and birth rates. And uh, you know, for the uh, some some folks are telling us that the real issue in the world is overpopulation. But in fact, the only parts of the world that, uh, that, that have significant growth rates are a few countries in Africa and a few countries over in the stands in, um, in Central Asia. The rest of the world is either just holding its own or is in massive demographic collapse. In Japan right now, they sell more diapers for adults every year than they do for babies. And it's worse than that in Korea. It's worse than that in China and in Russia. Uh, we've known about it in Western Europe for a long time. Here in the United States, we're, we're, we're below the replacement level. If we didn't have uh, large-scale immigration, uh, we would be in massive decline as well. And th- all of this is... is uh, is foretelling, is prophesying basically really serious problems across our world today. Um, we could talk also about deep religious decline. I, I, I forget the exact numbers, but just in the United States, don't quote me exactly on these numbers, but it's something like we close five churches for every one church that gets planted, one new church. That's a 
really serious issue. Now, may, maybe you're you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, you're a pastor or you're you're a missionary, so of course you're going to be concerned about these things. But it's not just that I'm concerned as a pastor. Yeah, I'm concerned as a pastor. Yeah, I'm concerned as a Christian. I want to see the church grow. I want to see the church prosper and do well. But I'm also concerned about this just as a human being because all of these things are describing massive human suffering on an almost unprecedented scale. And so I'm concerned about this, again, not just as a pastor or as a missionary, but I'm concerned about it just as a human being because this is a really serious issue, what's happening in our world. Let me give you this give you a technical definition of secularization. Um, Tongue-in-cheek, of course. But here's, here's my definition. Secularization is, is a psychological parasite that bores into your skull and eats your brain. But it doesn't eat your whole brain. It only eats the part of your brain that's focused on the future, that's focused on purpose, a sense of purpose to life, it's, it eats the part of your brain that enables you to have hope, that enables you to think about the future and have hope for the future. And that's what's happening across our rapidly secularizing world. This psychological parasite is eating that part of our brains and our kids' brains that enables them to have hope. And it's resulting in all of these dreadful things that I, that I just mentioned. Now the good news, the good news is that Jesus gives us the answer to this. Jesus has the solution to all of this right here in this passage that, that we just read. And I, what I hope to be able to show you is the connection between Matthew 28 and the earlier passage about Jesus' baptism where he receives his marching orders from the Father, where he is ordained to the priesthood, where he is, is uh, anointed as king, anointed as prophet, and ordained as priest, and begins to exercise his ministry. What I, what I hope to be able to show you is the connection between these passages and to, so that we can understand that our baptism into Christ is what also engrafts us into Him and into His vocation, His calling, His sense of purpose and meaning. In fact, we could say it this way. The whole Bible is an epic saga. It's a, it's a great and grand and glorious hero story. It's a story about a great hero and lots of great heroes who follow him. And when Jesus is given his commission in Matthew 3, the Father is specifically identifying him as the hero of this great story. And when chapter 28 talks about our baptism into him, it's talking about including us in that great epic saga where he's the hero, but he's calling us to join with him. Jesus essentially, we could say it this way, Jesus calls us to be a part 
of a great epic saga that promises hardships, challenge, struggle, and epic battles. Think of Lord of the Rings or something like that. He promises us all of that. He invites us to participate in this epic saga and to know the hardships and the challenges, the struggles and the epic battles. But it also promises to bring us freedom, satisfaction, and exquisite eternal joy. In other words, participating with Jesus in this epic mission that he is on, where he's the great hero, participating with him. It promises all of those struggles, but it also promises us this exquisite joy. So let me, let's take a look at these these passages, reflect on these passages that we've read, and let me try to set the stage here. So in, in Matthew's Gospel, we find there in chapter 3, as I've already mentioned, Jesus is baptized, and in his baptism, he's baptized by John. John plays the role of something like Elijah, where Jesus is sort of the Elisha to, to John as Elijah. So, so Jesus is... Uh, he is is uh, anointed as a prophet, a prophet to Israel, a prophet to his people. He's coming as the the covenant prosecutor to Israel. But more than just that, there's also the allusion there to Psalm two, when the Father says, "You are my son," or "This is my son." That phrase is taken straight out of Psalm two. Psalm 2 is the glorious promise of the Father to His Son that He will be His Son, and as His Son, He will give Him all of the nations of the earth as His inheritance. And so, the, the Father is, is anointing Him as, as King. Now, He doesn't yet take up His kingship. That's what happens after the resurrection. But He's called to be King. He's anointed as King. And we are reminded of the promise about how the, the promise from Psalm 2 that Jesus the Messiah is the one who is supposed to receive as his inheritance all of the nations of the earth. And then, of course, he is ordained as a prophet. There, there are a whole bunch of things we don't have time to get into here, but uh, how old was Jesus when he was baptized? Do you remember? He was 30, right? 30 is the age at which a priest in the Old Testament was ordained to the priesthood. There are lots of other things here, like, uh, for example, there are lots of different baptisms in the Old Testament. Every time you turn around, somebody has to get baptized again because they've contracted some kind of ritual impurity. But all of those baptisms, virtually all of them, are self-baptisms. But there's one baptism in the Old Testament that where another person does the baptism, the baptizing. And that's the ordination ritual. In the ordination ritual, that's when the high priest baptizes the new priest. There are other things like being anointed with oil in the, in the ordination ritual. And here Jesus is, is anointed with the Spirit. There's also the mention that when he comes up out of the water, the heavens were opened. In Mark's version of this, he uses the same verb, used later about how when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was split from top to bottom. It was ripped open. In Mark's gospel, he says, when Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were ripped open. 
the picture there is that it's his priesthood over against the priesthood of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, over against them, the corrupt priesthood, Jesus is the new priest. He is the head of a new priesthood. And it's his priesthood that truly does open the heavens and give us access to God. A whole lot more to say there, but I want you to see an allusion back to Psalm 2 and the promise about uh, the Messiah receiving the nations as his inheritance. The idea of the Son of God, that's a title for the Messiah taken from Psalm 2. Also the idea of his priesthood. Now, what happens in chapter 4? Immediately after Jesus' baptism, in chapter 4, Satan comes. And Satan has heard the proclamation from heaven just as well as the others did. Everybody heard it. In fact, we read later in Matthew's gospel that it became quite notorious. And even the, the leaders in Jerusalem heard about what had happened. So Satan comes to Jesus in the desert and he says, Well, if, if you're really the Son of God, as, the, as the, the voice from heaven said, If you're really the Son of God, then command these stones to be made bread. And he says, uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And he says, well, if you're the son of God, then cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple because he, it's written he's going to give his angels charge over you, lest you should even dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus says, it's also written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So for the first two temptations, the devil is trying to challenge this proclamation made to Jesus in his baptism. If you're really the son of God. But then in the third temptation. He's not focused on challenging that proclamation. Rather the devil is seeking to. To uh, undermine Jesus's confidence. In his father's love. Remember the proclamation said. This is my son. My beloved. In whom I am well pleased. And so the devil basically says to Jesus, well, what kind of a father, if he really loved his son, what kind of a father would send him to a cross? Yeah, we know in Psalm 2, he promised to give you all the nations of the earth as your inheritance, but he's telling you that to receive the nations, you have to go to the cross. What kind of love is that? What kind of fatherly love would send his son to a cross? Come with me. Come with me. Worship me. And I will give you all of the nations, all of the kingdoms of the earth. And I'll give them to you the easy way. You won't have to suffer. Just come with me. And of course, Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. And Jesus then, I like the way Luke's gospel phrases it, um, in Luke chapter 9 says, Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus, based on his baptism, based on the Father's proclamation in his baptism, Jesus had a rock solid and clear understanding of his identity and of his vocation, his calling. And so he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Struggles would come, opposition would come, great suffering would be endured. But in the midst of all of that, Jesus knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what his mission was. 
And he was able to face the difficulties and struggles and hardships and sorrows. He was able to face all of those things precisely because he knew who he was. He knew that he was the son. He was God's hero in God's epic saga. And he knew that he was loved by his father and his father was well pleased with him. Now in Matthew 28, on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection, now Jesus stands together on this mountain with his disciples and he makes this proclamation about himself. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all of the nations. In other words, now I have received title from my father, just as he promised in Psalm 2, as he alluded to in the baptism proclamation in Matthew 3, as Satan himself alluded to in the temptation in Matthew 4, and and offered to give them to me the easy way. Now my father has given me title to all of the nations, and so I'm calling you to join with me in this epic saga of going out to all of the nations, laying claim to my inheritance and discipling these nations and bringing them in. Now, that's the context within Matthew's gospel. I I titled this sermon something like Heroic Stories for a Heroic Task. And here's what I'm getting at. We, we need to know the stories. We need to know what, what this epic saga is in order to be able to, 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 to understand our place in the story, our role in the story. And it's only by knowing our role in the story that we can have the same courage and boldness and confidence in the midst of the struggles and the difficulties that come But we have to know the story. In this passage, there are a number of echoes of Old Testament stories here. And I'm I'm just going to mention three of them. I'd like for you to think with me about these Old Testament stories that Jesus is alluding to here. Because knowing these Old Testament stories help us understand the nature of the mission that he's giving, giving his church. The first story that we can hear an echo of, or we see an allusion to here, is the story from Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, after the creation of Adam and Eve, God commissions Adam and Eve, and he calls them to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. He says that he is to have all authority over God's creation, and he is to continue the work that God began and, 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 and he is God's vice regent in this creation that God has made. Well, Jesus, in Matthew 28, Jesus is, as Paul tells us, he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning of the new creation of God. In other words, he is the new Adam in God's new creation. And as the new Adam in God's new creation... He now, he understands his role in light of the charge that God gave to Adam. When God said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
Jesus says, now that is my charge, my commission as the new Adam. And that's what I'm calling you to join, uh, join me in. Also, just thinking about how this is set up in Matthew's gospel. The very first verse of Matthew, Matthew 1 verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. That, that phrase is lifted straight out of the book of Genesis. That's part of the, there's, there, that phrase occurs ten times in the book of Genesis, marking out the ten major divisions of, of the book. So Matthew is saying, listen, when I tell you this story about Jesus, I'm telling you the story of a new creation. This Jesus is a new Adam. And so we, the, the first verse of the whole book alludes back to Genesis 1, and now the last verse or verses of the same book allude back to Genesis 1. What Matthew is trying to tell us, what Jesus himself is telling us here, is that by engaging in the Great Commission, we are participating with Jesus, the new Adam, in this grand and glorious project that God had from the very beginning of subduing all the earth and having dominion over it, building a Christian civilization and seeing this whole world filled with this this, uh, civilization that recognizes Jesus as Lord and King. There's a second story that we should see here, not just the story about Adam, but we should also see the story of Joshua and the uh, God's reclaiming of the promised land. Uh, I intentionally didn't say the conquest because I think that's misleading to call it a conquest as if it used to not belong to God, but now God is saying, okay, I'm going to give it to, to my people. In the Old Testament, the Holy Land, the land of Canaan, was considered to be God's sanctuary. That's why we call it the Holy Land. It was God's sanctuary land. And Israel was placed there to be God's priest in that Holy Land or in the sanctuary. And the purpose of the Holy Land, we can see this. I know you all have been going through the... Uh, the book of Genesis of, of late. One of the things we see, one of the themes we see in Genesis is how the patriarchs dig wells in the land of Canaan. But what do the pagans do? What do the Canaanites do? They come and stop them all up. But then God's people dig new wells. That's a picture of how uh, of how the, the land of Canaan is supposed to be a fountain of God's mercy and grace and blessing to all the nations of the earth. But as long as these Canaanites are there, as long as the descendants of Canaan, you'll have to go back and read Genesis 9 to see more details about that. But as long as the Canaanites are there, all they do is stop up the wells so that God's mercy and grace do not flow to the nations. And so under Joshua, God sends Israel back in to cleanse the land, to cleanse the sanctuary, to unstop the wells so that the blessings of God can flow again to all of the nations. Now, it's not an accident that the name Joshua in Hebrew is just the, is just the Hebrew form of the name Jesus in Greek, or Jesus in Greek is a Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Jesus is the new Joshua. 
And in fact, if we go back to Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, in that passage, Moses has just died. Moses preached the whole book of Deuteronomy to God's people on the east side of the Jordan River. He told them all about the task of going in, taking possession of the land, and establishing uh, the, the, the city of God in this place. And Moses dies, and now Joshua is the one who's called to lead the charge, to lead the armies of God, to go in, take possession of the inheritance, get rid of the Canaanites, kick out the Canaanites, or destroy them so that the blessings of God can flow again. And all through there, God, through Joshua, says, do not fear. Uh, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Be strong and valiant because... And he says, this is the phrase that gets, that gets picked up here in Matthew 28, because I will be with you. Do not fear in this great and glorious task. It doesn't matter how tall the giants are. It doesn't matter how high the walls of the cities are. None of that matters. I will be with you. And so you can accomplish this task. So when, when Jesus gives his church, his disciples, the great commission here, He's making this claim about himself. He's the new Adam in God's new creation. And the Great Commission is a new dominion mandate. The second thing is he's the new Joshua. And he is calling us to join with him in this task of liberating the world from the Canaanites that have stopped up all the wells so that God's blessing and mercy and grace can flow to all the nations again. And then there's one last one that I want you to see here. And that is Jesus as a new Cyrus. Cyrus was a Persian. Uh, Cyrus was prophesied 200 years before he was even born. He was prophesied by Isaiah, the prophet. uh, Isaiah prophesied about Cyrus and said Cyrus would be God's servant who would conquer the Babylonians and liberate God's people from their exile. Remember the story that God's people had fallen into all kinds of idolatry. God kicked them out of the land, exiled them to the land of Babylon. The Babylonians destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, carried them off. But after 70 years, as Jeremiah had prophesied, after 70 years, God sends Cyrus to liberate his people, to free them from their captivity. And then in the very last book of the Old Testament. In, in Hebrew, the, you know what the last book of the Old Testament is? It's not Malachi. It's Second Chronicles. In the Hebrew order, it's Genesis to Second Chronicles. So in the last book, the last chapter, the last verse of the Old Testament in Hebrew, we have Cyrus who stands before the people of God and he says, the God of heaven and earth has, be, has given all authority to me. Sound familiar? Has given all authority to me. Therefore, I am commissioning you to go return to Jerusalem and build God's city and rebuild the temple. Jesus is intentionally echoing that phraseology from the last book, last chapter, last verse of the Old Testament. He's saying, not only am I the new Adam in God's new creation, not only am I a new Joshua in restoring the the promised land, but I am also the new Cyrus 
who liberates God's people from their exile. Except our exile is not exile into Babylon. Our exile is exile from the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned and got kicked out of the garden, all of us were exiled from God's presence. And now Jesus says, I'm the new Cyrus, and I conquer the evil one, the one who had you enslaved, and now I'm claiming you as my own, and and I'm restoring you from your exile. So Jesus here, notice how he's describing the story. Jesus is the hero of this epic saga. Jesus is, is the, the, the new Adam, the new Joshua, the new Cyrus. He conquers the enemy and he calls us to join with him in this task. So what, all, what does this have to do with a rat utopia experiment? Well, we're living in the rat utopia experiment and we're experiencing the, 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 the effects of that. Our whole world is degenerating into every kind of pathology imaginable. But Jesus is calling us to participate with Him in His, in his great project of renewing, transforming, and restoring the world. He's the new Adam, the new Joshua, the new Cyrus. And He says, I want you to come and join with me. This is a grand and glorious saga. There will be hardships, difficulties, trials. There will be great, huge, glorious battles. But there will also be exquisite joy for all of those who join with me in this task. So as we think about, we think about our engagement in that story, right here at St. Mark's, do you want to save your city? Do you want to be a blessing to the city of Nashville? I know that you do. Do you want to save your neighborhood? Do you want to save your children? In order to do that, we have to learn the story. We have to learn the story. We have to learn our role in the story. You know, when the pandemic hit back in 2000, uh, my wife and I, we were actually in the States at the time, and we got locked out of Peru. Um, One of our kids was in college in Peru at the time. She got locked in, and we got locked out. Um, I won't tell you all that story now. But but while we were in the States, we were in the San Antonio area, and I had heard about a a church in town that had a, a... a really effective program, a discipleship program, but it was especially directed to to men and directed to men that were struggling with addictions, uh, drug addictions or alcohol or pornography or all kinds of different things. And I, I'd heard what a great program it was, and so I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe we could use something like that in Peru, thinking about perhaps translating it into Spanish. So I said, I've got time, so I'm going to go and on Monday nights and I'm going to participate in this. And so they let me participate in it. They let me in and they put us in small groups of about 10 10 men. And the purpose of the small group is accountability, praying for each other, confessing our sins to each other, things like that. And it was it was a it was a it was a good program. I I I uh, 
I, I thought then, still think now, that is a, a very good program. But one thing that fascinated me about my time in that group, all of these young men, they were all coming because they were struggling with some kind of ad- addiction or pornography or something like that. They were all struggling with these things. And every single week they would come and we would, we would, uh, we would talk with each other and pray for each other. And every single week they would come and they would confess, well, I you know, fell off the wagon this week or I was watching pornography this week or this or that or something else. And so they would all confess these different things. But curiously... Every single one of them, virtually every single one of them, would...